You see, we're on a mission from God. podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Amanda Qureshi, also known as The Q. And today's guest is someone that I just adore, primarily on the internet, because that's how I know him. I mean, we've met offline, but I, I found him on the internet and I follow him on the internet. And he is just an incredible human being. And I knew when I started this podcast that he had to be in the first season. So welcome to Bobby Blanchard. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, Bobby, there are a lot of things that I want to say about you, but the first and most important thing is that <laughs> I love that there is a book called, named, titled, <laughs> Bobby Blanchard, Lesbian Gym Teacher. Like, I don't have a lot of envy in my life, <laughs> but like the fact that you have this like random ass book from like what the 80s or 90s no it's actually it's public it was published in 2010 2009 but it's just like written and like the alt style is like an 80s 90s like pulp lesbian fiction style but it was published like much more modernly it took me about a full year being like a journalist trying to establish myself online to knock that onto the second page of <laughs> Google Bobby Blanchard. Now it's mostly me when you Google my name, but um, if you Google Bobby Blanchard gay, Bobby Blanchard lesbian, I definitely still lose to that, of course, and I wouldn't want to beat it, honestly. Like, I'm happy to, like, you know, Coach Bobby is someone who I respect and admire, and I'm happy to have her take that top spot when people are looking for that. Okay, so I'm a little concerned, though, because because I, now I haven't read the book, but I'm concerned about this concept of, uh, of well, uh, someone in a position of, as an educator <laughs> who might be having some kind of influence that I don't know is necessarily uh, legal or healthy on her students, but, um, but whatever, I'll give it a try. It's fiction. I, I read half of it, and I need to read the full thing because it's actually like a really good mortal mystery um, oh. that I was really intrigued by. But the eroticism element of it is mostly concerned, well, it seems to be entirely concerned with the other teachers at the school. Okay. So oh, good. It, oh, good. Seems to be, it seems to be totally appropriate, but that I haven't finished a full text yet, I should say. So I still <laughs> need to do that someday. All I know is if you were to print like t-shirts with that book cover on it, I would wear it everywhere and be I like, mean, I know Bobby Blanchard. It's marketed as lesbian erotica, but like the, the half that I read is very tame, like very PG-13. So, you know, it's not nearly as scandalous. Maybe it does get more scandalous, but it's not nearly as scandalous as the cover implies. There's a line on the cover, and I might have this wrong, but it's something like, she schooled them on the field and off or something. Um, yeah. And it doesn't seem to be nearly this that scandalous. Okay, good. All right. Well, I was just a little nervous, but whatever. <laughs> like, I'm also, you know, as you know, chaotic neutral. So I, I'm kind of down for almost anything at this point in yes. my life. I'm like, whatever. Let's just try Chaotic it. alignment in this house only. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. The way I know you is that you work at the Texas Tribune. You are a journalist. Not, not a just lesbian a gym teacher. Not a lesbian gym teacher, uh, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but my next life, maybe. <laughs> you should be so lucky. <laughs> Honestly. So, uh, but you're not just a journalist, right? Like, 
just a journalist. Like you're a digital journalist, which is why I'm particularly interested in you because that's also Mike. I, you know, I come from the, the internet. So um, I'll just start off by saying anyone who doesn't follow Bobby Blanchard online and or the Texas Tribune should get on that because it's all some of the, the highest quality content you're going to find. However, we're really here to talk about you just as a person. And we're going to start with some, as I warned you, icebreakers. Can you handle it? I'm ready. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's what I like about you. You're always ready. <laughs> All right. Number one, what was the last thing you watched on television? So I have to ask a follow-up question. When you say television, do you uh, mean something that was ailed oval satellites into a little cable in my box? Or do you mean like net, like a TV in my home streaming Netflix? Like, what do you mean by television? I've How made a huge television? mistake by trying to interview a journalist here. I can see that now. Because <laughs> like, the answer varies quite dramatically either way. It's true. No, I, I guess what I'm saying, because we, we're in the same boat. Like we don't, technically we don't even have cable. I think we use Roku and Sling and all this other crap. Anything that you watched on the actual device, TV device. But it cool. could be streamed. It could be whatever. Um, so Eric and I just finished watching a Netflix show called Castlevania, actually. Oh. It's an animated show that is inspired off of a very famous video game series called Castlevania. And the premise is, is this is like, it's like the 1400s and like a European equivalent, you know, society um, of the 1400s. And the church has executed Dracula's wife, who is a oh. human. Rude. And Dracula is really mad about it, and he decides he's going to kill all humans to get revenge. The main characters are this um, like monster hunt hunter guy, this sorcerer lady, and like Dracula's son, who are like super not on board with this for obvious reasons, <laughs> and they all go on an adventure to try and stop Dracula. Meanwhile, Dracula has all this vampire politics nonsense going on. Um, and it's just, <laughs> it has like, it has like big D&D energy. Uh -huh. And that it's like, it's very bloody. It's very um, violent, but it's also very funny. And mm -hmm. like the character development is really well done. And the animation is just beautiful. So there are three seasons on Netflix right now. We like binged them all in like a week. It's not very long season. So like maybe four to five episodes full season, basically. Yeah. Um, but that's really well done, which... I don't have super positive things to say about most of the anime Netflix has tried to do in the past couple of years, but this is like the gym and the rough, like it's fantastic. It's really well done. It's really entertaining. And I, I, we really enjoyed it. Okay. Well, I'm sold. That sounds fantastic. And again, like I'm going to come in here and say that one of the things I really like about you is how much you embrace this sort of fantasy genre in, in lots of different forms because I too appreciate the fantasy. And I'm not going to ignore it, as you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I don't, is it really nerdy? Is it nerdy? I think nerdy's now cool. Like, you know, like all the cool kids are into that stuff now. So, yeah. you know. I guess. Yeah. I mean, like my, um, even my kids who aren't particularly nerdy, you know, they're, they're Gen Z. They really like it. Did you ever watch the, the Netflix series? Well, it's not a Netflix series, but it's called Merlin. It's on Netflix. No, but Eric has watched that. Yeah. Like, my kids l loved that. So we watched all of that. And then, you know, my kids went through, they went through the Harry Potter phase. They went through any, all of that stuff. Anything having to do with magic and sorcery and dragons and whatever. It has universal appeal. But I guess you have to, I, I guess you really do have to be sort of into it to want to role play it. You know, yes and no. So like, uh -huh. I, you know, some context for people who don't know me, like I 
in my spare time run a Dungeons and Dragons campaign for a group that is mostly comprised of either journalists or the partners of journalists. And those people I all consider relatively nerdy, but some of them are like not big fantasy nerds. And when we started doing this, most of them had never done anything like this before. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of them, it's now their favorite hobby. Or it's like one of their favorite hobbies. They like, they love it. They obsess over it. Like they really get into the role-playing aspect of it. Like they do voices. They like play in character. And that means that they will play the game in a way that is not optimal to the game rules, but it is what their character would do in the physical moment. Like, How fun. Like they, they really get into it. So I think like, I really think it is for everybody. It's like, I mean, it's, it's like make-believe, but with more rules, basically, right? And like, who didn't play make-believe when they were four, right? right? And it just, it's an excuse for adults to play make-believe, which is why I love it so much. I think actually that's right. I think that's one of the reasons why people love Halloween so much. People mm-hmm. really want an excuse to play make-believe. And I don't know exactly, I mean, I'm sure some very smart psychology, you know, person in psychology has figured out why that is. But I will not deny that that is a thing. Like, it is, it is a thing that you, like, because I did drama in high school, and I remember how much I loved doing it. Just being able to try something else on. You get to be somebody different for three or four hours, right? Like the feedback I get from the people who play in my group is like, this is my escape. Most of them are journalists again. So most of them are dealing with a constant 24-hour news crunch. And we've obviously had to take the game virtual this year because of the pandemic. But the feedback before the pandemic got from them was there's no screens involved. I put my phone down. I don't have to worry about what pressing breaking news might be happening or might happen tomorrow, what happened yesterday. Well, these three to five hours that we're playing D&D, I'm Daloon or I'm Ifu or Azel or Holly or like I am not the person I have to be every day, which is a person that I love, but a person who sometimes is very busy and stressed out, you know? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I think, I think that escapism is what draws people into playing Dungeons and Dragons well into the adult years. Like it's, it's really quite a lot of fun. Okay. And then, so for people who are not familiar with D&D, what is your role as a dungeon master? What does that actually entail? So when you show up to play Dungeons and Dragons, the basic premise is you are playing with other people and you all have a quest or a thing you want to accomplish. But the, the nature of the game is that you can do whatever you want. So there's a rule book, there are several rule books actually, that like lay out the way, the rules of the combat, the rules of like role playing, the way to go about like acquiring wealth and acquiring new talents, new abilities. But if your goal is protect the princess from being rescued from being like kidnapped by the dragon, there's no like template for how you go about doing that. And so you do whatever you, you say, I'm going to try setting the forest on file. And there is no like, okay, the, if the player tries to set the forest on file, then X happens. So there has to be someone to interpret the player's actions and respond accordingly. And that's the dungeon master. The dungeon master is responding to what the players are doing. They are putting the quests, the plot, the story in front of the players. They are role-playing as everybody the player meets, the monsters, the crocodiles, the wizards, the necromancers, the kings, the queens. They they all role-playing the dragons. They are like everybody else in the world. Mm -hmm. But they're not playing against the players. They're not trying to stop the players. They're trying to cultivate and create a realistic experience that makes the players feel like they're actually part of the endeavor. And that's what I love about the, the game is that like, it's player choice, like the players make the game. And that means that you can run the same campaign for two different groups of people and you will get dramatically different results every time. So 
just to give you an example, I ran this one campaign for uh-huh. two very different groups of whales, both with full-time group, never played before. And there's this pot whale, there's this castle of goblins, and there's a dwarf being held prisoner there, and the players want to go and rescue the dwarf. Well, the first group had the rogue sneak through the castle, like do all these stealth checks and avoid all these goblin patrols, and then get the dwarf out. The second group set the forest around the castle on fire, <laughs> while like the goblins group. out, and then like and then like went in disguised as goblins to like save the dwarf. Two extremely different like ways of playing the game, and like both were very tense because on one hand you have the single player going by themselves while everyone else is waiting outside with their fingers crossed, you know, making stealth checks, rolling the dice, trying not to get captured by goblins. And on the other hand, you have a raging file and a wild bear chasing the players through a burning forest as they try to rescue this dwarf. Two a completely different situations, both incredibly tense and exciting, and neither of which were like spelled out in the book that I have. Both of them were like, here's a problem, good luck to your players, and it's up to them to come up with a solution. And that's like, that's what I love about the game. Yeah. So do you feel like, because in that role, that's a really unique role in that you, you can't really ever lose yourself in the game, right? Like you're actually, you have to have some distance because you're, I mean, you can, you can get into it, but you're also responsible for sort of facilitating other people's experiences. Do you ever choose to not be the dungeon master and just, just have a role in the game? Or what is it that drew you to that particular position? I have played in one campaign when I was a player instead of a dungeon master. And I enjoyed it, but I, I think the dungeon master definitely has the most fun at the table, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. Um, the dungeon master is basically responsible for other people's fun. Right. right? Like if players are having fun at the table, it's because the DM did a good job setting them up to have fun. If they're not, the DM has done something wrong, most likely. And so I get a lot of thrill off of seeing other people have fun in response to what I'm doing. And I also get a lot of thrill. I mean, I'm egotistical. I love being the center of attention. And when the dungeon master, you are literally the center of attention because everything that happens goes through you. And that's, that's a lot of fun for me. I also like, I'm that type of person that loves to host. That I'd love to have people over. I love people into my apartment, onto my home, to have people over dinner, to have board game parties or whatever. It's the same kind of motif, right, as hosting. Like, it's a very similar type of personality. So, you know, when Eric and I first started this hobby, like, did someone need to be a dungeon master? And I just kind of volunteered because I was like, this kind of sounds like it could be fun. And it's the most fun I've ever had in my life doing that. Like, it's just fantastic. Awesome. Do you paint little characters and everything, too? We do. Yeah, yeah. we paint. I'm not a great painter, but Eric is a much better painter. Um, yeah. So he, he does that. Yeah. I was into it at one point in my life. And I remember I had like all these little pewter figures and these teeny tiny paintbrushes. And it was, it was a really fun hobby. It was a, it was a good thing to do. It is. I, I was kind of bummed because I finally got my, my mini collection of little figures to a place I was really proud of in February of 2020. And I was like, great, March is going to get here. We're going to play a game and it's going to be awesome. And I'm going to have all the figures that I've always wanted to put in front of the players um and there's something uh, happened in mulch you may have what? heard about it um <laughs> the hell i know <laughs> <laughs> okay we're, we're gonna come back to that that discussion oh, happy to. second icebreaker question is what was the last book that you read the complete guide to gardening for idiots are you gonna be a gardener 
Yeah. Um, so I actually haven't said this publicly yet because I'm, I'm afraid of jinxing things. Are we breaking um, things? Are we breaking news? You want to break news on your podcast, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm closing on a house next Thursday um, in six days, five days now, which is wild. So I'm going to go from living in like a full story um, apartment, a bedroom and then a living room to a house with three bedrooms and a giant backyard. Oh and I'm God. really excited. <laughs> That's so amazing. I'm trying to figure out how to, yeah, thank you. I'm really excited. So I'm trying to learn how to garden because I have never done that before. And I've always wanted to, but I've never literally had the space to do it before. And so like, I, I was trying, I was reading online. I was reading all these other books and I was like, okay, all these books also mean a base level of garden <laughs> knowledge and landscaping knowledge, which I don't have. Like right. books like talking about like compost and mulch. And I'm like, cool. What's the difference y'all? Like, <laughs> honestly, I need like the most basic level. Like this is a shovel. This is what composting means. This is what mulch is useful. Like I needed that level of stuff. And so I got a book that does like, like one of those idiots guides full of doing X and it was yeah. really helpful and useful. Awesome. So uh, my my mother and my brother are both like genius gardeners and I am not. And it and, and it's not because I haven't tried. Like I have put some serious time and money into it. I fucking ruin everything that I put in the ground. And it's so frustrating to me. So I think I may need to get that book, first of all. And second of all, congratulations. And oh my God, good luck. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, knock on wood, it's still have to close. But um it's been really smooth so far. I, I feel relatively confident that I will close on Thursday. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, amazing. And as soon as I do, I will be posting it social media because that's the kind of thing that has been really not shale for the past month now. Um, I'm really pumped. Wow. Uh, so are you going to get a second dog? Not immediately. Mostly because I've committed myself to not getting a second dog until we take care of everything that Odie needs and Odie mm-hmm. will eventually need hip surgery and I, I don't want to get a yeah. second dog until we do that. Got it. Got it. Okay. Final icebreaker question is what did you have for breakfast? A Red Bull and a Migas taco. <laughs> that is the Bobby Blanchard breakfast. Pretty on brand I feel like honestly. <laughs> if you were to walk into any taco shop in, in Austin and be like give me the Bobby Blanchard that's what they would give you. <laughs> That is fucking amazing and totally on brand. I think that the listening audience should know that you are kind of addicted. I'm going to say addicted to Red Bull. I don't know if it's a psychological or a physical addiction, but you are definitely at this point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing, and uh, I have I've had concerns. I'm mostly keeping to one or two a day right now, which is good. Good. Um, But session is coming. Yeah, those who don't know, it is a mad dash of about six months of lawmakers meeting to pass bills because in Texas, the legislature only meets once every two years, um, unless there's a special session, of course, which there probably will be. And because they only meet once every two years, they have a lot to get done in that six month period they're meeting because of the way the rules are written in Texas, they actually can't consider most bills until like month two or three. Texas is as most people know, a very small government-minded state. And so they have made it as difficult as possible to pass bills in this state. As a result, lawmakers cannot consider anything that is not considered an emergency item until I think sometime in March, like in terms of like house vote floors and stuff. Um, so, you know, session it starts out like a big bang because there's all these emergency items, it's a new speaker, yada, yada, yada. And then it's like kind of hurry up and wait for a bit, if that makes sense. Totally. And then March happens and it's like, 
go, 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 because every bill is up against a deadline. And most bills die not because, you know, lawmakers voted them down. Most bills die just because they don't, didn't move fast enough and they didn't meet the deadlines that they had to meet in order to become law. I mean, it's a really interesting political process. Yeah, my favorite part of our legislative session is like the first two, three months where lawmakers are basically sitting around like bringing their families to their offices and their snakes in the Capitol and like all this random bullshit. They, everyone wants to honor the local Boy Boy Scout troop, right? Uh It's interesting because we have no idea what that looks like next month, right? Because we're definitely going to be having to do something different given the pandemic and given how easily this thing spreads still and like how deadly it is. Keep in mind that like most lawmakers, not, I don't know, I don't know about most exactly, but a significant portion of state representatives and state senators live in an at-risk age bracket, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yep. And that's just... I mean, that's just a reality of the situation, and they want to be careful about that. There was a state board of education meeting uh, about two weeks ago, and three officials walked away from that with coronavirus. Don't know if they got it there or not, of course. You know, they, they were tested positive within two weeks after, I have to caveat. But in addition to that happening at that meeting, there was a reception after that meeting with the current members, retiring members, incoming members of the board, education lobbyists and other capital crowd people, you know, people wearing masks and stuff for the most part, it sounds like. But the Texas Tribune reported on Friday that no one told the hotel that people at that reception, it was an informal reception, but there was a reception, tested positive for coronavirus two weeks later. And we spoke to a number of other people who attended that reception, who also weren't told until we called them that people from that reception tested positive for coronavirus. My Um, God. So, you know, I mean, those are just examples of like, if you do things as you've been doing them for the past 86 of those sessions, you're going to have spread of coronavirus in the capital. Mm-hmm. We don't know exactly yet what it's going to look like, but we do know it's going to look pretty differently. It's super concerning because, and we don't have to talk all about politics because I know it's your job and unless you want to, I, I don't want you to feel like you have to, but it's obviously it's super interesting. <laughs> but one of the, one of the most important one of the reasons why state politics is so important is that it's so accessible so that you can go down there and you know talk to your lawmaker and you can go and testify at hearings and be there in person and have like a personal impact and you know there's already this notion that you know down in austin this sort of elite you know way of doing this i fear that that will become even more of the case if you have lawmakers kind of cordoned off and or that it will be used as an excuse to make themselves less accessible. I'm not going to point fingers. I'm not going to say that that will happen. But I do think that there's a concern that accessibility to your lawmakers is becoming less and less available. Yeah, and I think there are like two really interesting notes about that. We had a whole a week-long symposium about next session this past week at the Tribune that I was watching. And there were two panels that really stuck out to me that's interesting. One was three incoming new freshman members in the House. And one of them was saying that, like, she is there to represent whole constituents, and she is not going to place any limits on people accessing whole because people like public school teachers, you know, H-E-B grocery workers don't have that ability to do that Mm. with people. Why should she as a lawmaker, right? Yeah. And I think there is, you know, she didn't say this explicitly, but I think there is this feel that comes with like, if I don't make myself available, 
boy golly, that becomes a really easy primary ad in 2022. I think there is a certain risk for lawmakers if they don't make themselves available, right? Because it becomes pretty easy to run off of that, you know, if you're challenging that lawmaker two years later. You have to do it in a way that's safe and not going to spread the, the virus. But I think, I think lawmakers realize that there's a balance to strike there. It's based on that conversation that I hold. I'm, you know, there's a 150 or so members in the Texas House, right? So I, that was just three. So I'm sure there'll be different ones and varying opinions. But that was based on one. The other thing that was really stuck out to me on this point of accessibility and being able to access the lawmaking process is in the past, there have been groups of to gather in mass to voice their opinion on something, to protest something, to witness something. And those, the raw numbers of those people either arguing for or arguing against something has actually been used as a reference point in lawsuits over and against the bills, hmm. right? I don't know if it's been used convincingly in a lawsuit, right? But it is one of the things they talk about when people sue over something. And it's even, a, it's even like a stalling tactic in this process of passing or not passing bills. Most bills in Texas don't die because lawmakers voted them down. They die because they reached a chokehold point where they couldn't move forward or they missed the deadline. And, you know, that has that has consequences, right? And so if you just think of some of the recent examples um, in recent years, like something that one group that always sends out to mind is the disability organizations across the state, right? Yeah. That show up in force on disability rights days or ADA day um, or things like that because they want to make a point about something. They want to lobby for something or ask the lawmakers to do something for them. Members of that community is also particularly vulnerable to coronavirus. Is their voice diluted next session no longer have the option to go in person and say, hi, look at me in the eye and tell me you all are not going to vote a certain way mm -hmm. on this issue that impacts me, your constituent, right? Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Especially because almost everyone that I've ever spoken to in politics as, a, as an elected official will tell you or has told me that it's all about the relationships, right? Mm -hmm. it, it really is about building these long-term relationships and having that accessibility. So I, I do think that that's right. And, and that is my concern. And, but on the other hand, of course, then there's the reality that you don't want a bunch of people to get sick. So right. it's, a, it's a very, it's weird. Everything is weird, Bobby. Everything's, it's been a very weird year. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that. Sure. Because I'm really paranoid about my own cognitive biases, right? So I'm like, Half the time I'm like, is this just confirmation bias? Am I just, are things happening and I'm just using that as a reinforcement that this is the worst year ever? Or is this the worst year ever? Because it is a pretty fucking bad year. Like I don't understand why this particular calendar year so many bad things have happened. Yeah, um, it's been pretty shitty just to be scientific about it. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, <laughs> I think when you look at like the numbers of like lives lost and mm. like jobs lost and like the damage that's done to people's ability to make money mm -hmm. and ability to thrive, I think you're seeing pretty record breaking things, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's been a nightmare. Like it's just been, it's just been impossibly bad. I was thinking of the day, like the Australia files were in February of right. this year. Right. Like that happened this I, I, I am more like somewhat like darkly joking to a friend, like, is Australia still there? Has anyone checked in on them actually? Like, <laughs> it's just been like the atrocities, the tragedies have just like piled up on top of each other for like now 12 months 
consecutively. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what next year looks like. I actually like I, I was um, going through like one of my either Facebook timeline thing or something, and was like a year ago, you know, last week I posted something like, "Wow, 2019 is the most challenging year I've ever had professionally and personally." And I look at that, I was like, "Damn, everyone could just blame." 2020 on me like I just jinxed it like the Blanchards are like a baseball family we are super superstitious like I pull on jinx this goddamn you like well at least we know at least, at least we can, you can blame someone yeah. yeah please please withhold all comments now until the end of the year please <laughs> but at the same time so so there's that right like that you're right there is this just mass of just awfulness but then what's so I guess disorienting is that there are also really good things happening in my personal life like you were saying like you bought a house right and so it's like really hard to juxtapose good things that happen to you um, with this just overall environment of awfulness I don't know I don't know I it's just it's so disorienting I don't know what to think and I'm kind of at a point where I'm tired of even worrying Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I told myself at one point this year, you have to take every day, like every minute, every emotion as the emotion for that second. When you have things to feel good about, you cannot feel guilty for feeling good about them because right. otherwise, God, this year's gonna be a dumpster. I mean it already is a dumpster, but like it's just gonna get like wolves. Like you said, like I'm buying a house. That's super exciting. First time homeowner. I'm going to have a backyard for my dog. I can like, oh my God, it's an amazing backyard. Like, I'm just like, I am over the flip of the moon about this. And like, I'm doing this and I'm doing all the things I do to buy a house, like while we're in a mask. And that's like really weird. Like I toured the house with the realtor. We like didn't shake hands. Like we both wore masks. You know, I have no idea what she looks like from heel down. Like, <laughs> it's just, it's like, it's like, what? That's wild. You know, vaccines are arriving in Texas on Monday. Um, We're recording this on the 12th. So the false vaccines will arrive, we believe, on the 14th. And they're going to healthcare workers. And that's like a really great sign. That's optimism. That's hope. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. we finally have something to fight this thing back with. At the same time, like we are nowhere near the end of the tunnel of this. Healthcare workers will be vaccinated. That will slow the spread down some. But the reality is most ones will be vaccinated for months to come. And until a extremely significant of the population is vaccinated, we're not going to be able to return back to our normal lives. And even when we do, normal is still going to be relative. And I think balancing those things is tricky. I think you just have to give yourself permission to like feel whatever you're feeling, just be okay with it. Yeah. I want to kind of then transition into a discussion around mental health because mm-hmm. you are one of the people that I follow who I consider really self-aware and proactive when it comes to mental health. And you're honest about your own challenges. And you're also like, you're not prescriptive. You don't go around telling people, you know, I see, I see this a lot where people who have challenges or who have overcome challenges, then go around and try to make a, either a personal brand, or they make it a point to go around telling other people, you should do this and you should do this. You never do that, but you demonstrate out loud what it looks like to grapple with mental health and find your way forward. And I think that that's incredibly inspiring because for you, it's not about proving a point. It's just about being authentic in whatever challenges you have. The thing that I try to do is be the thing that I needed when I was like in my deepest, most challenging times personally. Like I needed to heal from someone 
you know, there isn't stigma around taking antidepressants if you need them, right? Mm -hmm. Like I need to hear from someone, oh, this actually isn't as intimidating, expensive as you might assume it is if you have health insurance, right? But that was one of my, that was one of the biggest burials I had to like seeking professional help a couple of years ago was I assumed it would be exorbitantly costly. Yep. And it really wasn't for me. Um, and that was just an assumption I had made. Um, that's not true for everybody. I want to be clear, right? I'm privileged in the situation that I am to have healthcare and stuff, obviously. But I assumed even with health insurance that like it would be too much to spend money on and it's like it's not at all and so like i i've tried to be the thing that i need to heal when i refuse to do what i need to do to get myself better i've also tried to make it clear that like progress or you know healing is not a straight line mm. right it goes up and down and like this year in particularly has been illuminative of that like i've had my like hardest moments this year which i thought i had moved past having my hardest moments i've also had my happiest ones this year too which is a really weird thing to say in this year particularly anyone who struggles with this or anyone at all really because like, everyone has some kind of mental health issue it yes. may not be a serious one but it may be so it's something that you you deal with maybe it's a fear of speaking maybe it's a like feel of aging you know like maybe it's a body issue like everyone has some sort of mental health issue on some sort of scale onto what, whether or not it's a thing that they are working through and need help with working through, it's, it's different, but everyone has something. And I think everyone needs to understand that it's not a battle you win or lose because it's not something that ever stops. You just get better at dealing with it, but there are some days still when it's still really hard and you have to let yourself have those hard days because you don't, you feel like a failure and that's not fair to yourself. I, I can't remember where I read this, but I read this in a book at the beginning of this year that was advice on like how to like kind of talk to yourself almost and the thing that like really stuck to me was you should never talk to yourself in a way that you wouldn't talk to a close friend so like treat yourself with the same love and respect that you give others so like you would never say to a, a friend or a close loved one wow you just really fucking suck today don't you like you would never say that to someone because that'd be so mean and inappropriate yeah, yeah. unless you're like just a bad person right like you wouldn't do that on the same level it is just flat out inappropriate and wrong to think internally, wow, I really suck today. Like, that's not nice to yourself. You know, that's just mean. I think we've come a long way as a society in terms of how we treat people and how we respect people. Yes. And I think we've slid back and, well, not all of us, but I think some of us have slid back in terms of how we treat ourselves. You know, the expectations we have for ourselves are just astronomically outside of what's possible. Like we all only have one human body and one human mind and one human heart. If we pretend to otherwise, we're setting ourselves up for failure. You know, I have teenagers. They're eight. They're about to turn 18. And they are amazing, amazing people. And so much more aware than I ever was at that age. I think I may have told you about this. Like even my son, who is, you know, he's an athlete. He's very hetero you know, kind of dude, and, but he's so sensitive about all kinds of issues, mental health and gender and gender roles. And like, he will admonish me for being part of the patriarchy, <laughs> right? And so it's just really interesting for me to see from the way I was raised as a kid and, and not even understanding where some of these fault lines were in our society to how my own kids have sort of an awareness and that they handle it with so much grace, right? They recognize that there are problems, but they are also, they understand that there are changes that need to be made and they're not, they're not jerks about it. 
And I really appreciate that. I don't, I mean, you tell me, how, what do we attribute this to? Because you're a millennial, so you're uh, kind of. That's not fair. I was going to ask you that. What happened? <laughs> that was my question for you. Because <laughs> like, I see, like, I talk to a lot of college students, a lot of high school students, and I see the exact same thing. I'm like, God damn, like, if I was competing with these students when I was graduating college, like, I would not be where I am now. Like, I don't hold a candle to them. Like, they all so much follow along, both in, like, how they communicate, how they think, like the critical thinking skills, like the ambitions, you know, the, what they want for journalism as a whole and like society is so much more ambitious than what I was when I was like at 18 and graduating high school or 23 and graduating. I'm like, gosh, what happened? Like, where are they putting the water now? Like, what? <laughs> like, I, I really like, I don't know. Like, it's something I've been wondering lately too. I think it's just, you know, I have a lot, I, I, I talk a lot of shit about millennials. <laughs> <laughs> Which, just mostly tongue-in-cheek uh, and playing up my own Gen X sort of awfulness. So I, you know, the whole thing about Gen X is that we are forgotten and that we have attitude and that we're very salty all the time and that we just have to take care of ourselves because nobody's going to take care of us and, you know, suck it up and all of that stuff. And that really is, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. That is like the ethos that I was raised with. And it's really hard for me to be empathetic sometimes. So it always rubs me the wrong way when you get millennials who are so entitled to respect, like they, they are entitled to respect. And, and I used to think that that was entitlement. And then I realized, no, no, that's, that's actually what it is. You do deserve respect, right? Like I would get offended by it. And then I'd be like, well, why don't they deserve it? Well, why don't I deserve it? Right? So I've learned a lot of, uh, I've learned a lot from millennials, but I think you have to get past that sort of the, the things that you put up, the walls that you put up and the, the reflexes that you have from being jaded and miserable. But I, I've seen like millennials are just like, we're not gonna, we don't have to do anything. We're not gonna fucking do it. If like, if you're not gonna be nice to me, if you're not gonna show me your respect, now fuck you, I don't have to do it. And so I've learned a lot from that generation. And I think there's something to be said for, for being raised with the mentality that you actually do deserve to be treated well and that you actually do deserve respect as a human being. I did not, I was not raised with, <laughs> with that at all. And uh, now that I've recognized that, I'm, I'm kind of on the millennial train. I'm like, hell yeah, I'm jumping on the millennial train now. It's so interesting because I have a very similar viewpoint to the generation behind me, like Generation um, Z or whatever it is we're calling them. I don't fully get them because they're like, humor is just completely like memefied, but it's like academia level memification of like, wow, that's really smart actually. And it has, yeah. has layers to it. Like, you yeah. know, it's like, it's like some of the stuff's like, oh my head y'all, like, I'm just sorry. But I have such a respect for them and like they'll um, spunk, if that's the right word to use. They're a spunky bunch. They are ambitious, they are creative. I speak with a lot of students both college and high school, like I said, and I'm just constantly like amazed at like what they've accomplished and what they all accomplishing every day. Yeah, no, it's, it's inspiring. I have to say, like when I get really in a funk about the state of the world, I look at my kids and I'm like, yeah, we're going to be okay. And, 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 but at the same time, I just want to say for the record that I'm not one of those people, like it actually really bothers me when people are like, oh, the kids are going to take care of us. That actually, I find really, I, I find it really offensive because I also feel like that you shouldn't raise children with weight of the world on their shoulders, right? I, like, it, it hurts me that my son is so worried about the environment. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that he loves the earth and that he's concerned about it. But I also am like, you know, why the fuck are you 18 years old and worried about whether or not 
you're going to be able to live on the planet when you're my age. Like that really hurts me. And so when I see older people that are like, I, I feel like it's almost exploitative when they're like trying to, to shove activisms and things off on the younger generation. Uh, let those kids find their way. They're going to take control at some point, but you also need to like get your shit together and make some, take some action. And, and that, I don't know, maybe it's because I felt exploited as a young, very young person in some ways that I was like, I, I don't, adults need to, to take ownership of things. <laughs> Do you think it's that generations are growing up faster? If that makes sense. The breadth of knowledge I had when I was 18 mm-hmm. versus the breadth about like the world and geographic and politics and everything versus what I think the breadth of knowledge that an 18 year old has today is like there's a canyon between those two things. You yeah. know what I mean? And I'd wonder if it's like, do you think generations are just growing up faster? So I think that they have a, I think they do have a, a broader knowledge set and I think that they're exposed to it much earlier. I don't think that, that the depth is always there. It can't be. Like you have, there are certain things that you have to grapple with over time and really pick apart. I mean, that's the whole point of study and, and like actually, you know, having a career and like being a part of a movement. It's like these change and understanding and knowledge and wisdom are built over time, which is not to say that you can't be wise and young. All I'm saying is that, yeah, they've got a lot a lot more thrown at them at a young age and maybe they're being forced to have a kind of uh, emotional and intellectual maturity or the appearance of emotional and intellectual maturity. And I think that's why it's so concerning for me. I just want to make sure that whatever my kids are doing and experiencing is an authentic response that's based in their full experience that it's an intellectual, emotional, physical, and spiritual response that is rooted in something more than just reactivity and whatever has been blasted into their prefrontal cortices <laughs> for, for oh, you know, the last couple of years. I think the amount of pressure putting on kids right now going to school, be it high school or college, is just, is just way too much. Mm-hmm. You know, I look, look, going back to mental health again, and thinking of the anxiety and depression that I've dealt with over the years. The biggest spikes were like in college, honestly, and high school. Like that is when like I was I struggled the most up and up until this year. And that's weird that being in college triggers a similar like emotional psychological response as living during a pandemic does. That's a little so I can't imagine doing both those things right now. Um, but like that's a little weird. Yeah. No, I agree with that. It's also that I don't know. We have some really shitty ideas about what it means to be successful and functional. And Mm -hmm. I do think that, I mean, good Lord, Bobby, like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what your experience was like growing up, but I spent a lot of time just doing nothing. (laughs) Like I was a young person that spent a lot of time reading and just like laying around eating snacks and watching TV and like painting by numbers and bullshit like that. Like I just did bullshit a lot and I liked it and right like rode my bike around and I don't know like I just fucked around a lot when I was younger and I feel like that is some really valuable stuff that that made me who I am and I you know a lot has been said about this but I I do worry that there's there has to be we've we've we want to fucking like make meaning out of everything right now and you can't interpret what something means to somebody else you can't make meaning for somebody else what your job is when you raise 
a generation, whether it's as a parent or as a society, is to provide a framework so that people can make their own meaning, right? And I don't know that we're doing that. I think at this point, we're trying to digest everything for the next generation and force feed it to them. The best thing about graduating college was I had time to do nothing again. I remember when I was like, starting when I was like a sophomore in high school, practically, every year I was taking like multiple advanced classes. I, you know, school for me started at 7.15 in the morning in high school, wow. which means I woke up around like 5.30 most days. And school was let out at 2.15, but every day I had extracurriculars that I was doing, especially by the time I was a junior and a senior, I either had, you know, the sports team I was on, Oh, I had yearbook, or oh, I had newspaper. I loved all of those things, but it meant I got home most days between 4.30 and 5. I was out of my house like I was a full-time adult yeah. doing like, you know, nine, 10 hour days when I was like 16 in high school, right? And then I had homework to do because I was in all these advanced classes. And there would be some days when I would wake up at four in the morning to finish homework because like I needed to finish it before school started that day. And that like boggles my mind that I did that because I cannot imagine doing that today. Like I can't, like I cannot imagine waking up at 4 a.m., going up until like going to a place all day until like 4.30 or 5 and then coming home, doing more homework and then going to bed at like 10 o'clock at night and doing it all the next day. Like that's like, that's an exhausting day. Right, right. Um, it holds my mind to think that I did that, like that anybody is doing that now. Like that's mm -hmm. just too much. I, I was talking to somebody yesterday who is a doctor for this podcast and we were talking about her experience in med school and residency. And I was like, isn't it strange that part of how we train doctors to take care of other people is by teaching them how to punish themselves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And I think that it's so our, our, our proclaimed values as a society, which is, you know, every person has value and that we need to take care of ourselves and one another, like we have all these grand and lofty values. And yet all of the structures that we have created for bringing people up into the world are about the opposite in many cases. It's about deprivation and about punishment and about overworking and undervaluing yourself. And that's, that's, that makes no sense. That makes no sense. This is instinct I have to constantly resist. And that instinct is turning my hobbies into revenue making things, right? right. Like I'm having to constantly like, no, you do not actually have to publish any like D&D &D book just to make an extra hundred bucks. Like that is like, that is a lot of work and time and won't be actually that much fun probably. Like you don't actually need to do that. I, I think a lot of people, particularly my generation, feels like if they are not like making money or making career progress, they're wasting their time on a thing. Mm -hmm. And everyone needs hobbies. That's not about a brand or like a like fulfillment of like your professional or monetary life. Because if everything has an end goal, like you said earlier, like if you're trying to assign meaning to everything that we do, we're going to break our brains. Like it's just, it's not sustainable. Yeah. Something happened between our generations because I mean, one of the biggest hallmarks of the millennial generation is this sort of rejection of, of like 
capitalism in the oh, beginning. I don't know if I agree. I feel like, like the embrace, embracement of it. Really? Like yeah. I, I'm seeing so many people who are millennials that are like, you know, fuck capitalism. And I'm like, for a long time, well, I was like, so we, like they all say it, but do they, they don't they practice that? You know what <laughs> right, I mean? Like right. the millennials are like all in the gig economy, right? Like they're the ones making, you know, they're the ones who are trying to monetize their hobbies. You know what I mean? Like that right. I feel like is like the most capitalism instinct possible. Right. So that's what I was wondering is like, I, cause I, I think it's okay. Like I do not have that instinct. Uh, something has happened. Something happened like where, cause uh, for me, I actually don't, maybe it's just my generation or maybe it's just me. I'm profoundly lazy. Like I'm like, I, every single thing for me is like a, I weigh it. I'm like, is this really something I want to spend energy on? Or should I just watch more Netflix, right? Like, I, I just don't have it in me to be like, yeah, I'm going to go do a bunch of shit for a hundred bucks. Fuck that, right? I would, like, my time is valuable to me. I don't, I mean, as long as I've got some snacks, I'm okay. I don't need, <laughs> I don't need Gucci shit, right? Like, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but I think you're right. There was some kind of like bridge veil, some kind of break that happened that like broke people a little bit. I don't know, because like I think your way is the right way for the record. Like that's the that's the, like that's like that's the motif that I want to aspire to. But it's like <laughs> it's something that like you know, and this is one of the reasons why like you know I haven't talked about Eric yet, but Eric, my partner, like mm. why we work so well together is he is the check on my ambition, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. he's the person being like, no you don't have time for this because if you try to do this, you won't be able to do the things you're already doing too. Yeah. And that's like why we work so well because I am the opposite for him. Like he is more inclined to like not do enough almost. And I'm like, okay, you need to like do these things that you said you would do in order to be, you know, happy about things. Mm-hmm. Um, like we, we are both extremes and we both very much need each other to balance each other out. That's great. And I will say, I'm not, it's not that I lack ambition. I am ambitious, but it's not to make money. Like right. my ambitions your, your are. Ambition is not like every corner of your like existence and mind. Yeah, you know? and I mean, I want, I want to have like my ambition is to have impact and to actually yeah. feel like fulfilled. Like I really crave having, you know, being part of things that are are making a difference or at least adding something beautiful to the world. So that's my ambition. But whether you do uh, things to make you happy, not to be successful. Yeah, but whether I make money at it is uh, is, is something completely different, which sure. you know is also a point of contention in my house because my husband is like why would you not my husband is an immigrant you know he came here you know for a better life he works his ass off all the time he came here and he's you know he's like why would you not want to make some money at that and i'm like well you know so we we have the same thing this is parallel to what we're talking about earlier with like you know students in high school and college these days between like doing things that you love because make you happy versus doing things to be successful at them right Mm -hmm. I don't know about your kids, but like I took a lot of advanced classes and subjects that I did not enjoy mm-hmm. just so that I could get my GPA higher, right? And just like I have a better resume and find a college. Like I took AP chemistry. I am not good at science. Like that is not my strong strength at all. Like period. I am a alty boy, you know, I like to write. I like to like do like cute things. I, I like chemistry, physics, like, nah, man. I, and like, I finally accepted that about myself as a senior. When I was a senior, I took aquatic sciences. <laughs> yes. talk about the beach a lot and it was fantastic it was awesome like it was great I don't know about your kids but I took a lot of classes in high school that I was like not really made to be taking 
Yeah, my daughter is much more that way than my son. My son takes some AP classes, but my daughter, you know, her friends group is much more academically inclined and, and competitive. And so I can tell you for a fact that we have had some serious angst over AP chemistry in our house this year. It's, it's yeah. not been pretty. Yeah. Or last year when they were juniors. Yeah, it was, it was not pretty. You know, my daughter is actually really, she's actually a lot more balanced than a lot of her friends. She will tell me that some of her friends are like on the verge of a breakdown because they're, they're under so much pressure. And I, I don't know if it's all the parents. I know some of it is parents. I also think that there's something about us that we internalize these, these expectations, or maybe it's just that we're naturally competitive creatures and we want to be better. And, and then that goes unchecked and it's not healthy. I'm not sure, but it is true that it's not good and that it's pretty, I, I do think it, it crosses generational lines. Yes, I agree with that. All right. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. We, I, I, we could go on. We didn't oh, even gosh, touch journalism. It's been an hour, hasn't it? I know. I know. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> what the? We, yeah, we could go on and on. Like, we, we didn't touch well, journalism. We didn't touch a lot of things. We didn't even talk about your dog. Do you want to at least talk about your dog? Odie's doing so well. He doesn't know yet he's going to have a backyard soon, but um, I think he's a little anxious because everything's in boxes now, and he doesn't understand Ooh. why, but mm -hmm. he's doing good. He, I think... I think like most pets, he's going to really struggle when this is all oval and I'm not going to live at home anymore 24-7. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But he's enjoying it for now. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it is pretty great for the pets. They are very happy about it. Ever since this, so we started the pandemic with two cats and we now have two cats, two guinea pigs, a frog, and oh a fish. Oh <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's incredible. I yeah. was, um... I was talking to someone that works at APA, Austin Vets Alive, which is mm -hmm. a local animal shelter here. And they were telling me that just demand for fostering and animals like went through the roof when this whole thing started. Yeah. And which is like really interesting because on one hand you might think, oh, people don't have the money to take a pets right now because it's a pandemic and the economy is kind of in the toilet. But on the other hand, I think it showed that everyone needed companionship right now. Yeah. Um, like I would not have made it through the shield, still a functioning human being if I didn't have like Eric and Odie in my tiny apartment, like that would have been really bad for me. Like I, to have that was a big plus. Um, yeah. You know, I used to work, I, I don't know if you know this, but uh, I used to work at an organization that serves the homeless. And one of the things that people don't recognize is that a lot of homeless people do have pets and mm -hmm. it's for that reason. And it's really important for them you know, emotionally to have that kind of companionship. And so we would always, you know, take out pet food and things for them because th that's part of what they need also. I think it's totally underestimated as, or it's still considered sort of just a, you know, a luxury to have a pet. And I don't think that it is. I think it's actually pretty essential. I, I agree with that, especially given the number of pets that are out there. You know, mm -hmm. um, Texas is a unique state, which still just a ton of pets that never make it to homes. You have some cities that have like 50% kill rates, oh, you wow. know, um, and like it's, uh, you know, that's not true in every state. In fact, Texas actually exports a number of shelter animals to other states that don't have an influx. Um, I have a friend that lives um, in one of the northern states that like borders Canada, and she was telling me that like they were trying to find a rescue dog to adopt. It took them months because the availability was so low. The local shelter would have like four or five dogs at most sometimes, 
and wow. they'll mostly breeds that won't allow it in the apartment complex. And so like, just given the, the supply, <laughs> to put it like bluntly, like there are just a ton, ton of like stray dogs or dogs in shelters that like don't have a home. Mm-hmm. I think it's like really short-sighted. And this is, this is actually argument you see in pet groups sometimes where people will see someone who is homeless with a dog and say, oh, we should get that dog to a shelter. And it's like, well, no, that dog is being cared for actually. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. dog is also caring for someone else too. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And and it's actually, it's very lovely. It's one of those things where if you talk to homeless folks who have pets, they they will tell you all about their, it's, it's, it's yeah. one of the things that's transcendent, right? Like you tell, you ask anybody about their pet, they're just going to gush. They're just going to go mm-hmm. on and on about it. It's, it's really nice, I think. All right. Anything else that you want to share with the world during this episode? You can I always come back for another episode. I don't think yeah. so. I think you want to come back because we this this went by really fast. So I know. I'll see you guys in two then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll do another one. Like, I'm going to preemptively invite myself back. How's that? <laughs> I, anytime, Bobby. Like, you know, it's one thing, you probably know this as a journalist, but I'm discovering this as somebody who's doing podcasting kind of as a, as a you know, first time, that when you interview people, it's a really interesting dynamic and it's not always easy. It's not as easy as it looks. And it's certainly not always easy, the same with everybody, right? Like some people are much more challenging to interview. And so like when I find people like you were, I mean, I could talk to you for 10 weeks and we're, you know, like, (laughs) what are we even like, what are we even covering? But to me, it's so interesting. People who are able to have these kinds of conversations and keep them alive and keep them going back and forth and whatever. I think it's great. And I will always want to talk to you. I find it much easier to be on this side of things, actually, even though like I used to interview people all the time for a living, like I struggle interviewing people. I remember the first time like I interviewed someone live for something and I was just like, uh, like I was, it was, it was I, did, I did not feel good about it afterwards. People said it went fine, but I was like, I don't know if that one went fine. And like, it's not easy. Like, it's not easy at all. You're right. So um, kudos to you because this was a lot of fun and it went by really fast, like I said. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, um, I will edit this up. I will get it out there. I will tag you and I will add links to all of your stuff so oh, that you. people can follow you because they should because you're awesome. Well, I look forward to um, sharing it when you publish this one. Okay. Um, are you going to say anything about my hair? It looks great. <laughs> it looks great. <laughs> yeah. Do you like it? I did it myself. Oh my God, you did it yourself? That's yes, incredible. yes, I'm so proud of it. Yeah, it looks professionally done. That's awesome. I know, I know. I'm so yeah. proud of it. Yeah, I, I did like like rocket science research on the internet about how to do it so I didn't fuck it up. So yeah, I would not trust myself with that. Um, again, <laughs> bad at chemistry. So, you know, um, <laughs> there's a lot of chemistry to doing that, you know, like uh-huh. dyeing your hair. Like um, my stylist, who I haven't seen in a very long time, <laughs> talks to me all the time like about the pH levels and other things that I don't remember because I'm bad at chemistry. Like she, like there's a whole, like whole science to that. I know. Well, I'm telling you the internet, like you can find anything on the internet. Like I fixed my goddamn dishwasher with a YouTube video. So it's just, that's really impressive. You know, whatever you want to do, Bobby, you just, there's YouTube video for it. (laughs) That is probably true. Unfortunately (laughs) and fortunately. Um. (laughs) Alas. Alas. (laughs) Alas. <laughs> well, thank you again for having me on. I really enjoyed this. Yeah. All right. You take care and have a good weekend. I'll, I'll let you know when this is up.
and don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves.